Well, before I, I read the text this morning, I want to tell you a bit about John Bunyan. I know most all of you know the most famous work that John Bunyan wrote was what? Pilgrim's Progress, probably the second most popular book in the world, second only to the Bible. And it's a great book to read. Parents, if you've not read it with your kids, I would encourage you to get on that sooner rather than later. It's a, it's a great book. But John, I want to tell you about John Bunyan, the life he led. It was not an easy life. He was born in England in 1628, born into a poor working class family, was trained and raised up as a tinker. Now, who of you know what a tinker is? What's a tinker, Maggie? Tinks on pots and pans, right. Just fixes, little little metal things, is all John Bunyan was. And um, so he's a poor, poor tinker. When he was 21 years old, though, he, he did marry. And somewhere in the early years of his marriage, he was converted to Christ. And though he was uneducated, though he was poor, he set himself about studying the Scriptures and became a mighty powerful preacher. And he, he would regularly preach to crowds of a thousand people. And so powerful was preaching that one of the great intellectual giants of the day, John Owen, who, who was a professor, maybe dean of Oxford, would often come to hear him preach. And when King Charles, the king, found out, he was close enough friends with John Owen, he says, John, why would you go and travel to listen to this uneducated man preach. And John Owen said, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. Such was the power of John Bunyan his, his preaching. Now, in the political environment of the day, his preaching ability could be a good thing or a bad thing because John Bunyan was born into a time in which there was great religious controversy. There, there was battles between the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which wanted to follow the, the Book of Common Prayer and they wanted high control over the churches, only preaching inside the churches and regulations according to everything they do. You've got to be ordained through their schools and that's, that's what they wanted. Whereas the Puritans, of which John Bunyan was, was more Bible people. They wanted to stand on the authority of God's Word and it alone and not be subject to the Book of Common Prayer. They wanted freedom in their churches. And with John Bunyan... When he preached with such an ability, it was okay as long as his view was in political power, his view was tolerated. Well, for about ten years he preached well and preached freely. And then the political winds turned against John Bunyan and he was jailed for his preaching. It took place a few years after his wife died and he remarried. And then just even a few years later, he found himself in prison for preaching the Gospel. Doing what he would do for ten years, uh, attracting crowds of a thousand people, seven in the morning before the work days when he preached to them. And he was in prison. At one point, his second wife came to protest between the authorities. In August, 16, in August of 1661, she came, stood before several men who would, describe, who would ultimately decide Bunyan's faith. Listen to her faith and resolve and how she, she pleads for her husband. When she came in to stand for this man, she was asked a question. Would he stop preaching? That's the deal. If he stops preaching, he's free. And she said, My Lord, he dares not leave off his preaching as long as he can speak. Well, what's the need of this talking then? She said, There is need for this, my Lord. For I have four small children that cannot help themselves, of which one is blind, and we have nothing to live upon but the charity of good people. 
And one of the men, Matthew Hale, felt pity. And she was so young. And she said, can it really be that you have four children? And she said, my Lord, I am a mother-in-law to them, having been married to him yet full two years. Indeed, I was with child when my husband was first apprehended, but being young and unaccustomed to such things, I was overcome at the news. I fell into labor and so continued for eight days and then was delivered, but my child died. Imprisonment caused an early labor. must have been pain there. And this man, Matthew Hale, was moved. But the other judges were hard. And they spoke out against him. They said, he's a mere tinker. And then she said, yes. And because he's a tinker and a poor man, therefore he's despised and cannot have justice. And one Mr. Chester was enraged and said that Bunyan will preach and do as he wishes. He preaches nothing but the Word of God, she said. Mr. Twisden then was in a rage. He runs up and down and does harm. And she said, no, my Lord, it is not so. God has owned him and does much good by him. Then the angry man said, His doctrine is of the devil. And she said, My Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. I mean, you just picture this poor woman pleading before these judges and they remained hard and kept him in prison. But that such was the hostility, the political hostility of the day to Bunyan's views. He could have been released at any time if he would have just said, I promise not to preach. He would have been free to go. And yet he himself knew he couldn't such a, keep such a promise. He knew he was called by the Lord to preach. He knew that he was gifted to the Lord to preach. He knew that he would go out and preach. And so as John Piper said, that Bunyan chose prison and a clear conscience over freedom and a conscience soiled by the agreement not to preach. Well, there John Bunyan remained for 12 years in prison. And they weren't easy years. Regarding the torment of those days, here's what John Bunyan wrote. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer to my heart than all besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. And yet, John Bunyan endured 12 years of suffering in prison. The physical hardship and suffering, which was one thing, which was real, but also just the emotional toil of the the pain he's inflicting upon his family. And you may not be called to spend 12 years in prison for your faith, but you are called to endure in your faith. And that is the call of our text this morning. It is a call to endurance. That's my message title this morning. A call to endurance. This text calls us to endure in our faith through our trials and our difficulties. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 10, verses 32-39. through 39. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The call to endurance really comes in the center of this text. It's found in verses 36, 35 and 36. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may see what was promised. Don't throw away your confidence. Verse 36, you have need of endurance. Now, those two thoughts, one can easily argue, are the main burden of this letter to the Hebrews. And certainly the, the epistle is saturated with explanations about why Jesus is better than the angels or Moses or Joshua or Aaron or any of the high priests. And though the, the writer argues over and over again how he offered a better sacrifice and gives to us a better covenant, all of these have an aim. And they have an aim that we would endure. In, in other words, let me put it this way. The book of Hebrews was not written as a theological treatise on the excellencies of Christ though it is that. But rather, the book of Hebrews is eminently practical, encouraging the readers to persevere in their faith, to have confidence in Jesus firm until the end, to endure the trials of life that come by believing in Him. The, the writer saying this, don't be wishy-washy in your faith. Don't be kind of in and out, maybe, yes, no, be all in. Don't throw away your confidence. Have your great confidence and endure until the end. And we've seen that concept before in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1. The writer said, don't drift away from what you have heard. Right? Don't drift into this. Rather, stand firm on your rock of your faith in Christ. Be confident in the message of the truth and hold fast to it. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, verses 12-14, to 14, the writer says it this way, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And right there, the, the care is taken. Don't fall away. Don't harden your hearts. Don't stray. But hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Be confident in your faith and hold this fast until the end. Thereby you show that you become a partaker of Christ. It's a, it's a call to endure. It's a call to endure the assurance that Jesus is your only hope in this life. It comes again in chapter 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things we are yet without sin. Therefore, here comes the conclusion, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And you see again the same idea. Hold fast our confession. Right? Cling to it. Don't ever let it go, but endure in holding fast to it. Draw near with confidence. That's our sole source of hope that Jesus in Him we find sins forgiven. And come to Jesus knowing that He is one who's going to extend grace and mercy in coming. We need to come with confidence. We need to come with assurance. We need to press on 
as Hebrews 6.1 says, until the end. This, by the way, is the essence of faith. Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is the assurance that God will make good on all His promises. Faith is a conviction that everything we have heard about in Jesus is true. And when you have such a conviction, you're going to hold it fast until the end. That's the thrust of our text here this morning. So Adriana put up, Jesus is better, so press on. Continue and endure until the end. Again, it comes in chapter 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil of His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And you see those things. The same thing. Boldly lean on Jesus and boldly cling to Him. It's incumbent upon us to, to come to Jesus with full assurance, as He says in verse 22. Without wavering, as He says in verse 23. He doesn't want us to doubt, but He wants us boldly to come into His presence to cling to Him forever until the end. And such is the call of our text. It's a call to endurance, as verse 35 and 36 say. Now, before we actually dig into our text, you need to understand that they come as an encouragement. My message this morning ought to be an encouragement to all of you. Because it comes right after a very severe warning in verses 26 through 31 of the impending doom of those who reject Christ. And those of you who were here last week know just how serious that text was. Last week, I preached a message that came hard and heavy. Did I come hard and heavy last week? I did. Amen. <laughs> I did. Because the text was. I mean, we're talking about eternal things. We're talking about one who's come to a knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus and the salvation that He provides. And then basically, one who spits in His face, insults Him, casts underfoot the Son of God, regards us unclean the blood of the covenant. And for those who do that and turn away from Jesus in willful sin, there's a terrible prospect that awaits Him. No longer does there remain a sacrifice for sins. There could never be a more terrifying reality for you to face than no sacrifice for sins. I mean, all of us are going to stand before God. Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. We will stand before God and we will either stand absolved of our sin because of our faith in Christ, or we'll stand naked and exposed with all of our sin there for Him and the world to see. And if there's no longer a sacrifice for sin, we're in dire straits. Indeed, as verse 31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But at this point, lest any of His readers sink into depression with little hope, the author gives them hope to realize there's good reason that they will escape the terrifying hands of God. I mean, after all, he is writing to the church. He's writing to professing Christians. Probably the majority who read this letter are on that, that path. He seeks to encourage them. Anyone in favor of encouragement this morning? <laughs> okay, good. Hands raised. Well, in, in seeking to encourage them, he points back to their life and reminds them of ways in which they were victorious over their trials. How do you endure? Point number one this morning, remember your past victories. Verses 32 through 34. 
Remember the ways that God has worked in your life. Look at verse 32. But remember, there it is, remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now, at this point, he's reminding them of the day of their conversion, the time of their conversion. He says that they were enlightened. That is, they, they came to know the truth. And then, in knowing the truth, then they believed and were saved from their sins. He says, remember those days when you came to faith. In those days when you came to faith, you experienced some sufferings. Do you remember those, he says? Maybe you can remember when you came to faith, some sufferings that came about because of your faith in Christ. But look, it wasn't the mere experiencing of the sufferings that was significant here. It is, it is how they endured through the sufferings that's significant. Look at verse 32 again. But remember the former days when after being enlightened and subsequently saved, you endured, there's our word, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. In other words, they faced some difficulties, but the difficulties weren't greater than they were. They overcame the difficulties. They weren't like the rocky soil that Jesus told about in the parable of the soils who received the Word and with gladness sprouted up. It was only temporary, having no firm root. Listen to what Jesus said about that type of soil. When affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately He falls away. Persecution, difficulty, the one upon the rocky soil will will fall away. Starting to sprout up, starting to be interested, but never getting the point to bear fruit and falling away. Nor were they like the thorny soil, which we'll see here in verse 34. Because they receive the Word, but due to the troubles of the world, they fall away. Jesus said of this soil, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke this Word, and it becomes unfruitful. But we see in verse 34 that they didn't cling on to the world, the deceitfulness of riches. No, they had open hands. And then, it says they're like the good soil, which heard the Word, understood it, and brought forth from the Word. Jesus said, hundredfold some, some sixty and some thirty. And the author here is telling them to remember that you had fruit in your life during a time of hardship and difficulty. And here's the line of reasoning he's using here. You're facing hardships in your life right now. There are some of your fellow Jews trying to pull you back into the sacrifices and temple life and synagogue life. Pulling you back into obedience to the law and submission to that in all of its details. But reflect upon the early days of your conversion. Remember the difficulties you went through and you were victorious through them. And you can be victorious now through the difficulties that you are facing as well. See, all of us who receive the Word will face sufferings. Paul told the the church, I think it was at Lystra, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We will all face difficulties. We will all face sufferings. But many fall away. Many fall away. Why? Because they're bad soil. But see, it's those that bear fruit are the ones who endure until the end. And Jesus identifies them as the good soil. And this is the encouragement of the original hearers. You have reason to believe that you're the real deal. And that God will strengthen you until the end. Because remember those former days. You endured and were, were victorious through your sufferings. That's why I named my point here this morning even. Right, to remember your past victories. That's what I said. The author made the same sort of statement in chapter 6. 
If you think about Hebrews, there are two warning sections that stand out larger than any. It's the chapter 6 warning section and the chapter 10 warning section we saw last week. And in chapter 6, it's about as hard as it gets as well. He speaks about those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then these people fall away, right? Come so close and then fall away. So for these people, it's impossible to be renewed again to salvation since by falling away, they crucify again the Son of God and put Him to open shame, insulting Him like last week. And then he continues on in verse 9 of chapter 6. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking this way. Yes, I'm giving you the warning, but in large, I'm confident of your salvation. That's what he says. Yes, the warning come. Feel it strongly. But as I've written to you, I have confidence that you've come to faith. I've seen your work of faith and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Chapter 6, verse 10. He says then, press on in confidence. And we desire each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the first full assurance of hope until the end. So you won't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? That you might press on is what he's saying. Same thing here in chapter 10. There's a warning, encouragement that I think you're doing okay, but press on. And that's the call here. It's a call to encouragement. I want you to notice also how he directs them to remember certain things in their life. He doesn't tell them to remember an emotional decision they made. He doesn't say, hey, remember the prayer you prayed? This is a mistake of many parents in raising their children. They remember the time when their child was six years old and came weeping and crying and didn't want to go to hell and so prayed this prayer. And they say, oh, oh but Jimmy, you're okay. Don't you remember back when you were six years old you prayed this prayer? I've heard other preachers make the same mistake. Well, you believe in Jesus, right? Jesus forgave your sins, right? Aren't you okay? That's not how He directs them. That's not to say a decision to follow Christ isn't important. It will help you through, through difficult days, but there's a difference between just a prayer that's made or some kind of emotional experience and a solemn resolve that says, I've decided I'm following Christ thick and thin and that's where I'm going. And then when the difficulties come, you can... Stay true to that. I remember Dirk Reet telling me the story about when he was on a mission trip in Guatemala. I think you're helping dig a well, build a school. Okay, you're always digging wells, building schools, building something, hydro things, whatever. Um, but at one point, Dirk told me he found himself out too late at night, kind of away from the missions compound or away from the church. And as he was driving back in Guatemala, there was some political insurgents at the time, and he was captured by some guerrilla soldiers and detained for about half an hour, I think, at gunpoint. Yeah? Machine guns? Big guns? AK-47s. How many of you have held at gunpoint AK-47s? Not me. Well, Dirk said to me, I remember uh, several years ago, he said he, a song kept ringing through his mind. He wasn't singing it out loud, I don't think, but he was singing his mind, I've decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It's right there. Right, just, just convincing himself, you know what? I'm following Christ and regardless of what's happened, this is where I am. Or to use the imagery of Jesus, I've put my hands to the plow. I'm not looking back. 
That's different than an emotional prayer. That was a solemn choice that Dirk constantly made to do that. And today, should you travel again to a foreign land, find yourself in a similar situation, or face some moral difficulty, you, you might look back to that time. Do you look back to that time often? Sometimes? Yeah, some. You might look back to that time and say, I endured a great conflict of sufferings for the sake of pursuing Christ and serving His church. The Lord sustained me in Guatemala and He'll sustain me again. And that's what He's pointing at. He said, you know what? The Lord sustained you right when you were first enlightened. And you endured through these great conflict of sufferings. And He will sustain you more. Look back to those. Be confident in your salvation because of those. And watch God provide for you again in the future. Alright, well at this point, a question comes up. What kind of sufferings do they experience? What's exactly He's talking about? Well, we have some clues in the text. We start digging, we can kind of unearth them. The first one comes in verse 32. He identifies them as a great conflict of sufferings. They weren't little sufferings. They were great conflicts. I think these are things that they would remember. There are certain things in your life that are big and huge and will make a big impact upon your life. And that's what's happening here. They, there would be no doubt that they would remember these things. Well, second, we see in verse 33 that their, their, their sufferings are very public partly by becoming by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They were made a public spectacle. The Greek word here is theatrizo, from which we get the word theater. Theater. Theatrizo. In other words, their, their sufferings were on the stage of the theater for all to see. It's one thing to suffer alone quietly in your room. It's another thing to have other unsympathetic witnesses watching your suffering. It just adds to the pain. And such was the nature of their sufferings. A very public thing. It was in the public square, in the public eye. Third clue we get in verse 33 is that there were various types of sufferings. They experienced reproaches. They experienced tribulations. Now the first term, reproaches, speaks about a verbal assault. They were ridiculed and mocked and scorned for following Jesus. Just like Jesus was. Remember upon the cross how mocked He was and scorned He was? They were being made fun of. Oh, you're following Jesus? Well, He's dead. Where is He? He's not going to help you. The second term is more general. Tribulations. It can refer to sufferings of all types. I think here in the context, though, it probably speaks about the more physical sufferings. Beatings, imprisonment, seizure of property. Those sorts of things. So we, we see what's, what's taking place here. Our fourth clue about the kind of sufferings they experienced in verse 33, some came directly and some came indirectly. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. That's one way. And partly, here's the second way, by becoming sharers with their, those who were so treated. So in other words, there are some people who were suffering this way and you became shared with them and suffered with them in some way. You say, well, how did that take place? Well, verse 34 shows one way in which that took place. I think explaining, right? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. In other words, there were those who were suffering imprisonment because of their faith, and there were some who were, were joining with that suffering in some place. Now, in order to see how that takes place, you think about jails back then. Imprisonment back then didn't, doesn't mean the same thing as imprisonment today. Today, everyone in prisons get three hots and a cot. That's what the prisoners say. Three good meals and a place to sleep. Usually very sanitary, 
conditions. I know as I've been in jails, done some jail ministry from time to time. Very clean, pristine. Very cold though, but it's nice and clean. But in almost other, every other time in history, this is not the case. Prisoners back then were locked up in rooms with a bunch of other prisoners. Not their own private cells. No TVs, no privileges. Big rooms, no beds. They were sitting there, had to sleep on the hard floor. No bathrooms. Think about that, children. You're in this big room with lots of people, no bathrooms. No running water, no food. So what are you going to do? You're just going to use the toilet there on the floor on the side of the room. It's going to cause some stink. It's going to cause bacteria. It's going to cause infection. Illness was commonplace. Death came often. So it only makes sense if you heard of a fellow believer in prison that you're going to, you're going to come. And the prisoners there were in need of those on the outside who would come to deliver them food. Deliver them maybe some comforts of home. But think about what happens when you know Phil Gusky's in prison and some of us start visiting Phil and bringing him some meals and, and bringing him some comforts and, and helping him with some ointments to help some sores in the midst of his, uh, his hardships. Maybe bringing him a pillow. The guards are watching. Oh, who are you coming to visit? Oh, Gusky. Oh, you're, he's a Christian. You're one of those Christians, huh? And once you identify with a fellow prisoner, showing sympathy to them, you're a marked person. And just as that person was in jail for believing and trusting in Christ, you might be the next target. Or you might be the object of ridicule or or reproach. Or some other physical things might take place. Or you might be imprisoned. It might take your property as well. That's all the the details the writer of the Hebrews tells us. We, we We don't have any examples. But we do have some examples probably in the book of Acts. A little bit what he's alluding to here. He might be alluding to some of this. He might be alluding to more things that we don't know of that weren't recorded in history. So you think about what happened in the book of Acts. Well, there was tribulations. There was reproaches. And some of the first came about after the Jews began following Jesus. A persecution arose. Right? When there were only a few, it wasn't a big deal. But when the church starts getting big, when it was 3,000 coming on the day of Pentecost, and then another 2,000 later, and Peter and John were out preaching, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day because it was already evening. And the next day approached. They stood trial before the religious leaders as Peter and John did. And they threatened them and said, Preach no more in the name of Jesus. And you know what happened when they were released? What did they do? They preached in the name of Jesus. It's a sign of their endurance, by the way. Remember the former days when having been imprisoned and warned not to preach, you went out and preached anyway. That's a great comfort. You can endure your trials today. So, they went out and preached again. They were arrested, brought in before the religious leaders. They said, we told you not to preach. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. And so they are flogged and ordered not to speak. And it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. It's a sign of their endurance. But remember the former days when you were flogged and you left being flogged with scars and, and ripped up blood on your back and you were rejoicing because you were suffering shame for the name of Jesus. And the sufferings and trials you're coming along today, you can endure them too. God will strengthen you. 
<clears throat> then came Stephen, preaching the truth about Jesus. He was dragged before the council to give an account. When he finished preaching, the people of the, the audience who heard didn't say, oh, nice sermon, Pastor. Good job. They picked up rocks and they stoned him. And he remembers he was dying. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's a sign of his endurance until the end. <clears throat> now we know from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that none of these had come to the point of shedding blood. So they hadn't died. Because otherwise, what would be the point of this? Remember the former days when you endured a great conflict of suffering by being stoned to death. <laughs> That's not what it was. But you could have looked to Stephen and, and uh, those that, that identified with Stephen were persecuted. In fact, as a result of the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there was a great persecution that began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. They didn't join in the death of Stephen, but being associated with Stephen, they were marked people and they had to leave and scatter outside of Jerusalem because persecution was coming upon them upon all who named the name of Christ. And people were going out trying to find these people. Remember Saul was on the road to Damascus with papers to be able to find them in Damascus, arrest them, bring them back, and have them tried for heresy and punished. Probably imprisoned themselves. Maybe, maybe killed as well. They are being joined in that. So remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings by being hunted down by Saul and enduring in your faith through that, whether you were caught or not caught. In Acts chapter 12, we read about the time when Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. He captured James, the brother of John, and he killed him with a sword. Lopped his head off, probably. And Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he captured Peter with the very same plan, intention to kill him as well. And maybe some of the original readers witnessed James' death and witnessed Peter and John's imprisonment, being arrested by Paul, faced the wrath of King Herod. They faced these kind of things. And these are just the tribulations come upon the Jews in the book of Acts. From Acts chapter 11 and following, really you can see the, the persecutions that come upon the Gentiles. And they are much at the hand of the Jews. And there's sometimes when Paul came into a city and he preached in the synagogue and the Jews believed and also Gentiles believed and then the, the Jewish people rose up against them and they had to flee the city sometimes for the sake of their lives. Those are some examples of maybe how it happened to these people. Regardless of how it happened, we know it was physically, it was verbally, imprisonment, seizure of property and through it all, they endured. And, and reminding them of endurance was the help to help them endure in the future. So as we think even here about us, I don't think any of you have been imprisoned for the sake of Christ. We live in a society today where there's much freedom. Thanks be to God. But I ask you, what kind of sufferings have you experienced since coming to faith that come to mind right now? Have you been mocked? ridiculed by people? Made fun of for believing in Jesus? I know some, particularly come out of some backgrounds. I remember a Jewish gal we knew at Indy Kalb who became a Christian 
and her father just disowned her for a couple years until he figured out that it made her live a better life. And then he brought her back in. I remember hearing the testimony of a man whose father, future father-in-law was Catholic or maybe father-in-law was Catholic and he became a Christian believing in the Bible and he threw him down the stairs just in a fit of rage. You do that to my daughter. You haven't married my daughter and now she's going to be involved. Just whatever. It might be family persecutions. might be friends. might be loss of friendships. might be verbal attacks. might be who knows what it is. I want you now even to think about those ways in which you stood for Christ, stood firm in the past because that's the very thing that's going to help you in the future when you remember how yeah, I've stood with Christ faithfully. Well, these people here, more than enduring... They went through things utterly victorious. It says in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. That's why I name this point. Remember your past victories. Don't remember just the, the sorrows and the struggles. But remember your victory. In fact, if you just remember the sorrows and the struggles, uh, Lloyd-Jones says in his book, Spiritual Depression, about those oftentimes who can remember their past sins and their past failures. And that like clouds everything. And then they become discouraged. But he's saying, no, don't, don't think back to your failures. Think about the ways in which God has sustained you. That's what's going to sustain you and help you in the future. And that's why remember your past victories. And this definitely is a victory. To have somebody come and take your property away and then accept it joyfully with a smile on their face. It's a little bit like the scene in Les Miserables when Jean Valjean, the, the convicted convict, was graciously brought into the home of the Bishop of Din. I'm not sure if you've seen this or not, but I'll kind of paint the picture for you. He's this convict. He's kind of on the loose a little bit. He comes this bishop, this Christian man, brings him into his home, shows him kindness, gives him a meal, and gives him a bed for the night. And Jean Valjean returns his kindness with theft. He arrives early in the morning and takes all the man's silverware, and he runs away, thinking like, oh, I heisted this man with some, some goodies here. He's caught by the police, brought back to the bishop, Basically, to press charges. Is this the man who stayed the night with you? And look what he's got. He's taking your silverware. And here's what the bishop says. Rather than condemning Jean Valjean for stealing his silverware, he says, no, officers, the silverware was a gift. And then he turned to Jean Valjean and, and he chastised him in front of the police and said, you forgot the most valuable things. You forgot the two silver candlesticks. Here, take them. Leave. Go on your way. It's like a total change of event. Here was a guy who's condemned, going to spend more years in prison, but rather he got more. And uh, really, that was a turning point in his life because mercy triumphs over judgment. But that's a bit like what's happening here in the scene of the Hebrews. Because of their faith in Christ, their homes were being plundered. Some authorities were coming in. Governmental authorities, I'm not sure. And they weren't fighting it. They weren't protesting. They weren't calling the ACLU who would be on their side in this point. Rather, they joyfully allowed others to come and take their own possessions. So here, oh, you missed that. Oh, I got some things hidden underneath here. Why don't you take that? Now, that's not to say, by the way, that we shouldn't protest if the government comes to try to take our property. Right? There are provisions in place in our country we can protect from that sort of thing happening. We can write letters. We can make it known. We can put videos on YouTube. I'm not sure how you do it. You can make known the injustices in this world in America and can go well. There are provisions in place where we can protest against the raising of taxes. 
which is basically the government taking our stuff to provide services, whatever. We can vote those who will lower our taxes. And should injustice take place, there are means we can pursue them. We can get lawyers. And I would say, by all means, pursue those. Because most often, that's, that's not being taken because of your faith in Christ. But for those of the first century, there was no choice. They were under a dictatorship. The, the Roman authorities were sovereign over everything. And what they said, go. And if they came, that's how it was. And furthermore, they were losing their property because they were believers in Christ. Not because they are mere citizens. And if it ever comes to that in our country, let's part with our possessions joyfully. Because our kingdom is not this world says Jesus. If it is, I'd be fighting. Let's show the world that our kingdom is not of this world. I, I remember a few years back, probably about ten years ago, talking to someone in California who was uh, who's up there and he was paranoid about the government right, taking over. And, 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 and particularly, the, the topic of conversation here was the 501-3C, whatever we are, is that the right number? We're a tax-deductible organization, so if you give money to the church, it's, it's, you don't have to, whatever, that's a deductible income for you. You're not taxed on, on that income. And he was really concerned, basically, for church buildings. Because once you start putting capital into church buildings, and, and if you're doing it in a tax-free way, then the government basically has leverage over you. And he said, submitting to the, the tax break, submits the church to the rules and regulations of government, which he was arguing gives the government ultimate authority over the church. And they well, may well come, like they do in China and other places, and say, you can't preach this. And if you do, we're going to take your property. And he was all worried about that. And so he was trying to say, well, we should, we should give money a different way, or we should try to, try to get around that so the government has, doesn't have control and can't come and take any buildings that we might have. He was all concerned uh, about this. And to these things, I simply said this. Well, listen. If it ever gets to this situation, we must obey God rather than men, right? And we'll preach even what the government says we're not going to preach and let them take our buildings. Let them have it. And let them have it and let's give it to them joyfully because we must obey God rather than men. And that's a clear decision. I'm following Jesus and because I'm following Jesus, I'm losing my possessions. (laughs) So be it. That's how these people were enduring. I just ask you, if it ever comes to that, are you willing to part with your possessions? If it's a choice between following Jesus and your possessions, right, someone knocks the door and says, we have come to take away your property because we have heard that you are a Christian. Are you a follower of Jesus? Will you say, yes, I am? Take my property. Or were you so cling to your property that you will deny Christ? It's a pertinent question for us in America. We have so much. We have so much to part with. That's why it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus even said, said in, in Luke Chapter 14, verse 33, No man can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. The early church was willing. You remember in Acts chapter 2, when they became Christians, they were saw someone in need, so they sold their possessions willingly, took the money, gave it to the apostles to distribute to those poor in need. They gave up their possessions already. 
And so when the government came in, said, oh, we've already been giving it up for the sake of the church here. Might as well give it up to you as well. How were they able to do this? How were they able to endure? Well, that's my second point. Not only did they remember their past victories, but also, point number two, look to your future reward. Look to your future reward. And again, this is verse 34. Notice what it is that's motivating them. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Here's what they know. They knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The reason why these believers were able to part ways with their material possessions is because they had their eyes not on the material possessions, but on the eternal possessions that they would have. They knew that what they were going to receive was a, here's the word, better possession. Everything in heaven is better than what we have here on earth. Everything. The streets are made of gold. The gates are made of pearls. There's no need for a light because God illumines everything. There's no sin in the city. The river is pure. No rock river for us. (laughs) This is pure river. You can see down to the bottom this river. And not only this river refreshing, it is life-giving. And the tree of life is there which bears... Twelve kinds of fruit, each a new fruit every month. It never goes dormant. This tree of life which gives us life. Everything is better in heaven. And here's the thing, is that these people believed it. They believed it and then acted upon it. So when they lost the earthly possession, no problem. I've got a better possession. Not only is it better, but it's lasting. It will endure forever and forever and forever. These people believe the words of Jesus. As I quoted earlier, no one can be my disciple who not give up all his own possessions. That doesn't mean that you need to own nothing if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, because otherwise, like I'm like, hmm, I can't be a disciple unless I, yeah, I'm going to give it to Dirk. And now Dirk's in trouble. Right? And so he gives it to Phil, and Phil's in trouble. It's like material hot potatoes, right? That's, that's not quite what it is. But it is this. It says, give up all claims to all of your possessions. Anyone needs it? You've got an open hand and you'll give it. You'll borrow freely. You won't be concerned when people in your stuff and they break it. Yeah, it might be disappointing, frustrating a little bit, but you know what? It's all stuff. It's passing away. And I say, we need to come to grips with this in America The only way we'll be willing to let it go is if we have our eyes on our better possession and on our lasting one. Keeping our our eyes to our future reward. And it comes in verse 35 as well. I I read this for you, but I I didn't point this out or didn't really illuminate this for you. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. In other words, here we're talking about confidence in Christ. We're talking about confidence completely trusting in Him because when you do that, there's a reward that awaits you. I heard someone talking this week about um, even if I didn't believe in God and even if I wasn't a Christian, I still would live the Christian life um, because it's it's good. I'd say, (laughs) you're screwed up if that's the way you think. Because Paul says, if we live and Christ didn't die and raise from the dead, 
we are of all men most to be pitied because our faith is in vain. No, if, this, if there's no reward ahead of you, then live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die and there's no reward. Do that. We are, we are wise people. We're smart people. We're the ones looking for the reward. And there's nothing wrong with looking for the reward. But see, it's not in this life. It's awaiting for us. And you obtain it not by works, you obtain it by faith. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So you, you need to believe not only the existence of God, but you need to believe that He's going to reward you for putting everything in and believing in Jesus making Him look great. And it's amazing what people will do who place their eyes on the prize. Athletes will endure amazing things because they know the glory that awaits them in the game. Right? These football players will, will, will lift weights like crazy so they can slam down a quarterback and then, and then jump like this, you know? <laughs> That's what they're living for. But they'll make great sacrifices because of the reward on the back end. Musicians will make great sacrifices in their time and diligence, torturous hours of practice because they know the concert's coming where they're going to get the reward. Businessmen will endure long hours in the office and traveling on vacation because they know the reward of the paycheck coming on the other side. And it's not wrong to be motivated by a reward. I mean, we go to work each day for a reward to get a paycheck. We take our photographs and enter them in the fair for a reward, for a ribbon. It's not wrong. The hardworking farmer works hard for his reward. It's a crop that's not a bad thing. And we of all people, we're, we're smart, okay? Because as Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy. Because see, we're looking for that possession rather than this one. And that's where our confidence is and that's where we're trusting. And I guarantee you, if that's where you are, you will not be disappointed when the day of eternity comes. You will not. Verse 36, same idea. You have need of endurance. And here it is again, the call of the text to endure. So that when you've done the will of God, what's the will of God? It's to believe in Jesus, to embrace Him, to, to love Him, serve Him. When you've done that, you may receive what was promised. See, there's this promise that God has given to us. And the promise might easily, probably lots of different ways, but one, it might be said like in Hebrews Chapter 10, this is the covenant I'll make with them. I'll put my laws upon their heart, on their mind, I will write them. He says that actually back in chapter 8. He says, they will be my people, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? God is going to take us as His own possession. That's one of the promises, probably the, the great promise of all the Scriptures. And that's what we look for. That's what Jesus promised to us. And that's what we get at the end of our endurance. By the way, and our endurance demonstrates the reality of our faith because we have become partakers of Christ and we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Right? We hold fast to the end. It shows that we have already become partakers of Christ. Jesus says it's those who endure until the end who will be saved to receive these promises. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on, laboring for this prize. And what's the prize? 
eternal life with God where He claims us as His own forever. Paul pictures himself as an athlete, just pressing on. And then he says, Philippians 3.15, the very next verse, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Right? Have what attitude? Right? I've forsaken everything. I'm pursuing Jesus with all my might that I might know Him and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a faith which comes, with righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, let no one have this, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, it says, God revealed that to you. He says, you've got a wrong attitude if you're seeking anything else other than total abandonment from your life to follow Jesus. To get the prize. We long for that day when, when Jesus will take us into His arm and says, well done, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Master. That's what we're looking forward to. The life of endurance is a life that has joy at the end of it. So I urge you, church family, not only to look to your past victories, but also look to your future reward. And... Um, you know, for the sake of time, we'll just end here. We'll look at 37, 38, 39 next week. Probably call that message a, a call to faith. Still the same, same themes, though, are, are coming up there. But let me, let me close this one, one thought. As John Bunyan was in prison, what do you think held him in prison for 12 years? What do you think, Jared? Prayer did? Yeah? What else? Yeah, Andrew? Faith. Faith, yeah. What? He's got yours. How about this? I know what, what kept him in prison was that he remembered his past victory and he had his eye towards a future reward. Listen to what he says. He quotes 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, in which Paul said, We had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. And then he writes this, By this Scripture... 2 Corinthians 1.9 I was made to see that if I ever would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing in this life. Even to reckon myself and my wife and my children and my health and my enjoyment and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I think he remembered his past victories when he resolved that everything in his life was dead to him. That's the only way he could survive. Thinking about his wife and blind child and other children out there. He says, you know what? They are dead to me. I have, I have followed Jesus. I have loved Jesus more than I've loved my wife and daughter and mother and son and possessions and house. I've followed that. That's where I am and I've been victorious over that. I've changed. I've been preaching that. As he remembered his past and where he's done, his commitments he made. And then secondly, as he looked towards the future reward, his eye wasn't upon the here and now. It was upon the eternal things. He'd receive his reward. And those will be the things that will sustain us. Looking at our past victories and looking to our future reward. And my hope and prayer is that that would be us at Rock Valley Bible Church. That God would so stir us that we would endure until the end and know the joy of our Master. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Oh Lord, I pray that You would work these things as deep convictions in our heart.
God, to think back to the times in which we overcame through the blood of the Lamb. Bring those things to remembrance, God. Not the discouraging things, but the encouraging things where You worked and reigned and ruled in our lives. And may that strengthen us in days to come. I know difficult days are ahead. And I know people in this congregation and the things they face, and there are difficult things ahead. And I, I, I pray the past would help. I pray the future hope would help as well. Lord, the Scriptures so often speak about placing our hope in God and in God alone, even as we read Psalm 62 today. As Jesus incessantly pointed out, just uh, it's, it's the future that we live for. It's not the here and now. It's that that hasn't yet come. And so I pray, Lord, that You would put in us a heavenly mindedness that lives above the things of this earth. Start with me, O Lord, to realize that that the things of this world are, are empty and vain. It's a thing of Christ that will last. So strengthen us, please, O Lord, I would pray. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.